It's great to see you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 7. And if you weren't able to bring a Bible with you today, that is not a problem. Uh, in the pew in front of you, there should be an ESV Bible there for you. And uh, we're going to be on page, if you're using that Bible, we'll be on page 791. We're in Mark chapter 7 today. Um, I already know most of you that are here, but if we haven't met yet, my name is Ian, and I'm a church planning resident here at King's Church. Uh, my family and I and our launch team, uh, some that are here today are going to be uh, preparing, continuing to prepare to go out and launch Risen Church in Concord, just about 20 minutes north of here very soon. Uh, but we uh, count the days here very precious, as I've told you before. But as you make your way to Mark 7, let's talk about hunger. I assume that all of us here know what it's like to feel hungry. It's both a blessing and a curse, isn't it? When you first become hungry, hunger first strikes, it awakens these hopeful, delightful cravings as you think about the good food that you might get the chance to eat. But if hunger strikes for too long, it leads to frustration, maybe even desperation. That line between hungry and hangry is pretty thin, isn't it? From time to time in my household, uh, when my wife Christina and I want to sleep in on a Saturday morning, a one or maybe multiple famished tiny humans, otherwise known as children, can climb into the bed and make their hanger known. Well, recently, our 13-year-old dog has begun waking us up in the middle of the night in hangry fits of howling rage. Uh, I think she knows that her time is running short because she's getting kind of old, so she better eat while she still can. So any moment hunger strikes, she lets us know. In the most extreme instances, hunger will actually drive people to legitimate desperation. People have been known to do desperate things when their need for food goes unmet. On the other hand, though, hunger is good for us. Despite the discomfort that it sometimes brings, God gave our bodies hunger so that we might be aware of our need, so that we might be driven to look outward for nourishment. Just imagine an animal that never felt the sense of hunger. It didn't have the instinct to know that it needed food. What would happen to that animal over time? Of course, it would begin to wither away. It would starve without even knowing what was going on because it didn't have the sense of hunger to tell it that it needed to go and eat. So uncomfortable as hunger might be at times, every creature from great to small relies on this sensation for survival. In today's text, we're going to start in the middle of Mark chapter 7. We're going to go to the middle of Mark chapter 8. We're going to see several snapshots of hungry and desperate people. In one case, it's literal physical hunger, but in other cases, it's this desperate spiritual hunger. It's a, a craving for help. It's a spiritual need that has to be nourished. And we'll see these different individuals and groups. There's varying levels of awareness of their hunger and of what they need to meet that need. And much like the people we're going to read about today, you and I, we suffer from the hunger pangs of need in this life. Yes, physically, but for most of us here, primarily spiritually. The question that we have to answer and the question that people have to answer in the text today is where do we go for our nourishment? What we'll also see is that Jesus, the hero of this story, he's the one who comes to bring bread. Three of the four stories that we'll read today use the imagery of bread. They actually have something to do with bread. And each time Jesus is the one who brings it, each time Jesus is the source, the only one who can provide nourishment, whatever the underlying need might be. But what we'll also see is that the only people that receive this bread, the only people that receive this nourishment, whether it's literal or figurative, are those who recognize their hunger. 
Ultimately, we'll come to learn this today, that Jesus is true bread for hungry people. Let's pray before we read. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We come hungry for nourishment from your word. And I pray that you'd stir in us a deeper desire for the things of God. Ask that you'd open our spiritual ears to hear and our spiritual eyes to see your truth in Scripture. So often our daily lives, they deaden our senses, they deaden our awareness, either of our needs or of what we actually need to meet those needs, and that's you. As we come to your word today, we pray with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's begin reading together Mark 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, we see this, that Jesus is bread for the undeserving. Jesus is bread for the undeserving. Now, if we're going to grasp the full weight of this story, we have to backtrack a little bit to last week. We have to remember what just happened in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, Chad preached in Mark chapter 7, the first half of it, and we saw Jesus in this argument with the Pharisees who were the cultural and religious elite in ancient Israel. So Jesus, as he's talking to the Pharisees, he rebukes them for creating these rules and traditions beyond what Scripture requires. And they actually use these rules and traditions as a front to disobey the actual commands of God. And they use them to elevate themselves above the people around them as if they're more holy and more disciplined than all the other people. These Pharisees, they think that these man-made rituals, they make them more clean in the sight of God. But Jesus says in response to them, It's not your outward traditions and rituals that make you clean or dirty. It's what comes out of your heart. He rebukes them for cleaning up their outward appearance while having hearts that still harbor sin. Not only did these Pharisees use the traditions in a self-righteous way, but they also did it in this exclusivist and ethnocentric way. The rituals they had, they they became dividing lines between themselves and Gentile, which is just a broad term for non-Jewish people. Of course, in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament in Scripture, God did give some specific laws to Jews that were meant to set them apart from the nations around them. But the purpose wasn't to permanently exclude those nations. The reason for these things that God gave to Israel was that they would be a testimony to the nations. Where the Pharisees and the other Jews had gone wrong here in Mark 7 is that they took God's actual commandments, they added their own additional traditions on top of it, And they use these to exclude anyone else outside of Israel from any hope of participation in the kingdom of God. So 
let me ask, thinking about that, do you think it's any mere coincidence that after rebuking the Pharisees for their self-righteous, exclusivist approach to God's law, that Jesus immediately takes a trip into Gentile territory? Not at all. This is no coincidence. Let's go back to the text, what we read in verses 24 through 30. Jesus makes his way through the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon. This woman then comes to him. She falls at his feet and begs him to heal her daughter of a demon. As Mark describes her, he says she's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. What's cool in a gospel like this is we have some other accounts. In the book of Matthew, we see this same story recounted by Matthew, and there's some additional details that are added there. Matthew doesn't just say she's a Gentile or a Syrophoenician woman. He calls her a Canaanite. That should send us some alarm bells for us if we're familiar with the Old Testament. We need to remember that the Canaanites were the prototypical enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. This is provocative, right? This is a big deal. A Canaanite coming to the Jewish Messiah asking for help. What's Jesus going to do? Imagine you're one of his disciples. You're Jewish by upbringing. Your entire life you've heard these old stories of war between Israel and the evil Canaanites and all these other Gentile nations. But this Gentile woman, this, this Canaanite, comes and falls at Jesus' feet right before your eyes. What would you want him to do? I imagine if we were in modern day and say Jesus went to Clemson University and he had these 12 Clemson disciples following him and then you see a, a South Carolina fan come and fall at his feet, what would you want him to do? You know, first we see Jesus respond to her dismissively. He says to her, this curious statement. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Does that answer unsettle you a little bit? Does it seem a little uncharacteristic of the Jesus we know and worship? Did he just call her a dog? He did, but notice what he's doing here. He's playing into what someone might expect, a holy Jewish miracle worker to say to a Canaanite woman. He's answering at least initially like you might expect a Pharisee to answer. Probably like his disciples want him to answer in the moment. Let's take a second, let's define our terms in this little parable Jesus is giving in verse 27. When he says children, he's speaking about the Jews, and when he says the dogs, he's speaking about everyone else. He's speaking about Gentiles. The idea here is that the Jews were the children of the covenant, that they were the first recipients of God's covenant promises throughout the Old Testament. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were outsiders. So in one sense, Jesus was sent first to the Jews as their Messiah, and he's focused on them, at least initially, in his earthly ministry. So for a Gentile woman to come to him, begging for help, this was like a dog whining at the table, begging at the feet of the children and their master. But here's the question, does Jesus ultimately shoo her away? See, with this first response, he's actually beckoning her to persist in faith, to keep asking. And she responds to him with this utter humility. She doesn't argue with him. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Look at her faith. If she's seemingly turned away by this Messiah, but she keeps asking. Notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't argue that she's not a dog. She doesn't argue that he ought to consider her one of the children. She doesn't list her qualifications for him to do anything for her. The Pharisees would do that. You and I might do that, but not this woman. With all humility, she simply says, even if I'm a dog, even if I don't get the first share of the bread, I know you'll give me the crumb. 
And what does he do? He meets her need. He gives her the bread that she hungers for. Right then and there, he exerts his absolute power over all creation, over all spiritual forces, and with a word, he declares her daughter healed. Again, if we looked at Matthew's account in Matthew 15, Jesus even exclaims, Oh, woman, great is your faith. It's rare that you see him say that to one of the Jewish people. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Might this be a reminder to us again that Jesus isn't looking for qualifications. He's not looking for ritual perfectionism. He's looking for humble faith because he is bread for the undeserving. By every definition of the word, this woman is unclean. If you look at Jewish custom, she's unclean from birth because she's a Syrophoenician, Gentile, Canaanite. She's unclean by culture. She has a daughter that's plagued by an unclean spirit. She's unclean, 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 but unclean though she is, she's humble enough to come to the king. And Jesus is pleased, even impressed by her faith. Again, contrast this with the Pharisees from last week. They thought themselves so clean that they could call Jesus unclean because they had their additional rituals and things that they had created. Now, if a Pharisee had come to Jesus needing help, they'd be laying up their self-righteous deeds as a bargaining chip, wouldn't they? This woman says, I know I don't deserve it, but have mercy on me. Friends, this is the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. He wants you to come to him in humility admitting that you are utterly undeserving. He wants you to recognize that you're spiritually hungry, that apart from him you're spiritually starving with needs that only he can meet. And he'll show himself to be true bread for you. You and I, by the same standards that are here, we're dogs. right? Not only are we Gentiles by birth, but I assume for all of us here, but far more than that, we're undeserving dogs because of our sin that every human being carries into this world. There should be no room for spiritual pride or entitlement in our hearts if we're honest with ourselves. We don't deserve a single answer to prayer, much less eternal salvation, but this Jesus delights to give it to those who approach him by faith, to those who simply rely on his grace. Jesus is bread for the undeserving so long as we acknowledge our need. And as we're so used to in Mark's gospel, Jesus just keeps on moving on his mission. He continues further into Gentile territory in the story that follows. So listen with me to verses 31 to 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. As we look at this miraculous healing, we see this, that Jesus is bread for the helpless. Jesus is bread for the helpless. Again, we see Jesus enter the region of the Decapolis. And Decapolis simply means ten cities. While it's along the Sea of Galilee, this is another overwhelmingly Gentile territory. 
If you were here just in the last few weeks, this region, the name of it, the Decapolis, might be sounding familiar to you. There might be some, uh, some bells ringing for you. Let's think back to Mark chapter 5. This is the place where Jesus does this crazy miracle, and he casts a legion of unclean spirits out of a demon-possessed man, somebody that nobody could restrain, this guy that was cutting himself with stones, and crazy things were happening as this man was possessed. But Jesus casts out this legion of unclean spirits, then they enter a herd of 2,000 pigs. The 2,000 pigs rush down a bank into the sea and drown there. It's a crazy exorcism story. The text tells us that everybody in the town, they were all amazed, and this demon-possessed man, dressed in his right mind, goes back to all the people who knew him as insane and demon-possessed and proclaims to them all that Jesus has done for him. So with that in the background, just a couple chapters ago, I imagine that's why when Jesus shows up in Decapolis again, people are thinking, hey, the the miracle worker is here, the one who healed the demon-possessed man. If there's any hope for this deaf guy that's over here, This is probably the only one who can help him. This Jewish miracle worker, this guy who called himself a Messiah, this was the one for the job. Think about this man who came for healing. Think of how helpless he was. He was deaf and he couldn't speak. He had no good way of communication. And especially, we're thinking in ancient times, accommodation and inclusion were not common or valuable things back then. Often, a person in his situation, a person with his malady, would just be cast aside. The people of his town, they had no ability to help him or communicate with him. He had no ability to help himself. From all I can gather, he probably had no clue who Jesus was because no one had any way to tell him about what had happened to the demon-possessed man. There was no communication. He was so helpless that he couldn't even ask Jesus for help or probably even know to ask Jesus for help. Praise God for those who brought him to Jesus, right? As we look at the healing itself, we see this wonderful, selfless compassion from Jesus. He takes this man aside, away from the crowd, away from the clamoring of all the people. And how often do you think anyone spent time, one-on-one, face-to-face with this man? I wonder, I doubt if at any point in his adult life that that had ever happened to him. Not only that, but Jesus touched the man. Often people with a condition like this, they weren't only social outcasts, but they'd be considered unclean. So nobody would want to touch somebody that had that for fear of getting whatever it was. But Jesus, unfazed by this, places his healing hands upon him, just like he did with the leper back in Mark chapter 1. What he does is a little odd, isn't it? He puts his fingers into his ears, then he spits, and he touches the man's tongue. Yeah, it's strange, but scholars believe this could be a bit like sign language. Jesus showing the man in the way that he could, that he was about to heal him. We see Jesus look up to heaven. As he looks up to heaven, he shows his dependence on the Father and shows that this is where help comes from. And he sighs deeply. We see him move to the core with compassion for this man and for his helpless estate. And with a word, Ephatha, he says, be open. Immediately, this once helpless man is made well. He hears fully, he speaks clearly, he's restored. And then even though Jesus tells him, hey, don't go tell anybody about this. It's not my time yet. They can't even help it. They go all the more zealously and proclaim it in the town once again. They can't even contain themselves. We see them proclaim in verse 37 this worshipful but loaded statement. 
They say, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. These Gentiles might not have realized what they were saying, but this statement is no coincidence. Under what I believe is the Holy Spirit's direction, this is a direct reference to Isaiah 35, which was this Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. Let's read Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now, now why do I say this is no coincidence? This Greek word here that's translated mute is only used one time in the Septuagint. If you haven't heard of that term before, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And this was produced a few hundred years before the time of Jesus. So that word for mute is used one time in the Old Testament, there in Isaiah 35. And that word for mute is only used one time in the New Testament, which was written in Greek. And where was it? Right here in Mark. You see, through this compassionate healing of a helpless Gentile, Jesus has fulfilled the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 35. Now, Isaiah 35 was originally written to Jews, but here we see it carried forward to this helpless Gentile. This God who comes into the world to bring hope, who comes to save, who comes to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to make the lame walk and make the mute tongue sing for joy, he gives his blessing to helpless people who have nothing to offer him and no way to help themselves. Jesus is true bread for the helpless. Friends, this ought to move us. All of us, whether we admit it or not, we are spiritually helpless. We are left, if we're left to our own devices, we've got nothing we can do to save ourselves. Because of the effects of sin that we are born with, we enter this world blind and deaf to spiritual truth. If you're here and you're a Christian today, it is only because Jesus has pulled you aside from the crowd. And he has opened your ears to hear him. And he has freed your once spiritually mute tongue to sing his praises and confess him as Lord. He has allowed you to hear the beauty of his gospel message that Christ died for your sins so that you, by believing, would have eternal life. If you're not a Christian here today, or at the very least you might say, hey, I'm not actively and currently walking with Jesus, consider this. As he so orchestrated the circumstances of your life, to get you here today, to pull you aside from the crowd, to lay his hands on you and to say to the ears of your heart, be opened. If you'll admit that you're helpless to save yourself, if you'll recognize your spiritual hunger, he'll show himself to be the bread that you need. For all of us, this should also move us to follow the example of Christ. How can we show compassion toward the helpless in the world around us? In your life, who, who are society's outcasts that you can treat with compassion and care just as Jesus did for this man? And who knows what God might do through that? He may use you to meet physical needs as he did here, but primarily spiritual, eternal needs. If you show this merciful, compassionate love of Christ to those who might be considered helpless in your day-to-day -day life. As we continue moving and we enter into Mark 8, we come to this story that should remind us of something we just saw a couple of weeks ago. But there's one important difference that we need to zero in on. 
Let's read Mark 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, when when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Are you having a little deja vu yet? If you were here just a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that Caleb preached on the feeding of the 5,000. That story was in Mark chapter 6, and it's eerily similar to this one. Almost an exact repetition of the same miracle. There's a few small and really important differences. This time it's 4,000 people instead of 5,000. They start with seven loaves and a few small fish, whereas before they started with five loaves and two fish. They take up seven baskets of leftovers instead of 12. But there's one much more important difference that I'll get to in a second, so hang with me. Since this was covered so recently and Caleb very effectively explained the meaning of the first miracle, go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it yet. I'm just going to give a quick overview of some of the significance of this kind of miracle. First, there's a physical dimension to what Jesus is doing. Jesus literally physically multiplies bread to physically feed a multitude of hungry people. These people have been with him three days and they have not had enough food. So he meets their physical need in the moment with an act of compassion. Second, there's a theological dimension to this kind of miracle. Again, this is stuff that Caleb talked about just a couple of weeks ago. Jesus shows his divine nature in making food multiply out of nothing. He does exactly what God did in the Old Testament for the people of Israel when he made them manna in the wilderness. This here is Jesus' theological declaration that he is God. Nobody else can do this. Even further, beyond that, Jesus says in John 6, after he feeds the 5,000 there, that it was a sign to show that he himself is the bread of life. This is why in the title and the points today, I've said Jesus himself is the bread for the nations, because that's what Jesus said in John chapter 6, that those who are spiritually nourished by him through faith will have eternal life. So all of those elements were present in the feeding of the 5,000. All of those elements are present in the feeding of the 4,000. But the third dimension is what we need to focus on. It's the missional dimension. Now notice this. Between the healing of the deaf man in the Decapolis and this miraculous feeding of 4,000 people, Jesus never changed locations. He's still in Gentile territory. Let's think back to Mark 6. What territory was he in in Mark 6 when he fed 5,000? He was in Jewish territory. He was feeding Jewish people that were listening to him. But now Jesus goes and repeats this miracle because he's doing for the Gentiles what had previously been done for the Jews. So we see in this that Jesus is bread for the nations. But don't forget the exchange between Jesus and the Gentile woman that we just talked about a few minutes ago. That's actually a bridge to this story. Jesus says to her in Mark 7, 27, 
He says, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, quite literally here, Jesus feeds the children of the covenant in Israel first, but now the Gentiles get the chance to come to the table. How beautiful is this? They don't just get crumbs. They get the exact same provision, the exact same miracle that the Jews got. The Gentiles here have leftovers as well. Seven baskets full. Friends, these aren't merely crumbs. Jesus is bread for the nations. Now remember, the whole Bible storyline from beginning to end is God redeeming the whole earth. When Adam and Eve sinned, the whole thing fell apart. Every human being has been affected by the ravaging effects of sin. Now yes, through the Old Testament, God has this special purpose for Israel, and that purpose was to bring about this Christ, to bring Jesus, the Messiah, to the world, but his presence it was never meant for the Jews alone. The intention was always to reach the nations. Isaiah 49.6, it speaks of the Messiah, this suffering servant of God, and it says he's a light to the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul says in Romans 1 that salvation is for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. Greek is just another word for Gentile. It's a summary of all the nations. Revelation 7, it shows us that every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship around the throne. And Revelation 22 shows that every tribe, tongue, and nation will eat together from the tree of life. So when Jesus does this series of back-to-back miracles in Gentile territory, he's been showing the global aspect of his mission all along. It's the mission he's calling his disciples into, and it's the one he's given to you and me as well if we're in Christ. So friends, if we are truly going to follow Jesus, we should have a heart for the nations just like he does. We should long to see his message spread to every corner of the earth. We've talked about and prayed today and last week for Megan, who's now gone to South Asia to bring the gospel of Christ, to bring the bread of life to people who have never heard of him before. What drives someone to make that crazy kind of decision to uproot their life and go all the way across the world except this deep conviction that Jesus is the only hope for the nations. Let's not forget this. We're the nations too. The only reason we have the gospel here today, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, thousands of years later, is because those who went before us had a commitment to the nations. But even today, nearly two billion people in our world have zero access to the gospel in their language and culture. Nearly two billion more have minimal access to the gospel. That's half the world. The work is not complete. Just as Jesus himself went to the nations as the bread of life, so we who know him, we're responsible to bring the bread of life to every corner of the earth because Jesus is bread for the nations. I hope you've seen here how all this applies to you throughout these last few points. All of us, totally undeserving of anything Christ could give us. We're all, in some sense, helpless apart from him. We are all the nations, and if we're in Christ, are sent to the nations. But in our last passage this morning, this might bring the text even a little closer to home. Let's continue in Mark 8, verses 11 through 21. This is our final passage this morning. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. 
Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, speaking to his disciples here, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Amidst all the other things we've said so far, we see here that Jesus is bread for the weak in faith. He is bread for the weak in faith. We're shown here in this last passage two groups who demonstrate their lack of perception about who Jesus is. In some sense, they demonstrate unbelief. We got the Pharisees on one hand and Jesus' disciples on the other. But what's important to see here is that while both are wrong about Jesus, the way in which they are wrong is vastly different. We'll start first with the Pharisees. Jesus comes back into their, their territory again by boat, and immediately the Pharisees, they jump right on him, they confront him. Here they are again. They come demanding a sign from heaven to test him. Now, of course, if someone came here today claiming that they were the Messiah, we should want some evidence, right? It's not necessarily wrong to want some evidence of that, but I imagine Jesus is thinking this. Did you Pharisees miss everything I've been doing? Food comes out of thin air, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Have you seen it? Of course they had, but they, here they come demanding yet another sign. Friends, this is the heart of stubborn unbelief. There could have been a thousand more signs than they never would have believed. And Jesus refuses to give them a sign because he knows their hearts. When it says he left them, that word kind of carries the sense of fully and finally abandoning them. Now, it might seem harsh, but after all, it says they asked for a sign. Why? In order to test him. They had no intention of believing. They simply sought to discredit him, so he allowed their hearts to become more hardened by rejecting their plea for a sign. Let me say this to you. If you're here and you are self-righteously holding something above God that he needs to do to prove to you that he is real, if you're holding something over God's head so that he can prove something to you, you're in trouble. God has given all the signs that are necessary. What you do with that is your responsibility, as we saw with the Pharisees. Let's look at the disciples. They have this moment where they're in the boat after the whole Pharisee thing, and they realize they don't have enough bread. They forget that they've got Jesus, the one who twice multiplied bread for thousands of people, sitting right before their eyes. They have the God of all creation sitting there in the boat with them, the one who spoke the universe into existence. And they complain that they have no bread. They've missed it. Jesus asks them this series of questions. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Are your hearts hardened? That's why he tells them not to take the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, the people that persisted in stubborn unbelief. He says, don't be like them. Then he takes them back through these two feeding miracles. 
Let's picture it. Jesus says to them, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? The disciples were like, ooh, 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 me, me. Probably Peter first, right? He's like, 12. Yes. All right. Well, when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets were left over? Ooh, 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 ooh. Bartholomew, maybe. I don't know. Seven. Right. Don't you guys get it? Don't you trust me? Don't you see who I am? I'm, I'm still right here with you. This reminds me a little bit of a scene from the old 90s sitcom Friends. Any old millennials and anyone older probably knows what I'm talking about here. But if you've seen this episode I'm thinking of, you might remember a scene, which has now actually become an internet meme, where Phoebe tries to teach Joey Tribbiani how to introduce himself in French. So he needs to learn to say, je m'appelle Joey, right? So she starts off by saying, repeat after me, je, je, ma, ma, pel, pel. She's like, okay. Good. Say that a little faster. Je, je, ma, ma, pel, pel. And Phoebe gets all excited. She's like, okay, I think he's got it. She says, okay, now, Joey, put it all together. Say je m'appelle. And he says, oui, poo <laughs> Totally gets it wrong. We see the disciples, they're struggling to put together who Jesus really is, just like Joey is struggling to put together a phrase in French. They've got these disconnected puzzle pieces, but they, they can't put them all together into something that makes sense. They're still missing it, but at the end of the day, they're still vastly different from the Pharisees. You see, Jesus abandons the Pharisees because they don't have any intention to believe. Or when they question him, they do it as a way to pad their unbelief. But when the disciples bring their questions, however blind and obtuse they are, their intention is to believe. Yes, Jesus rebukes them in love, but he doesn't abandon them. He says, do you not yet understand? They will. Yes, now their faith is weak. Yes, their understanding wavers. Yes, they doubt despite everything that they've seen. But they stay with him. And friends, he stays with them. Just like he stays with you and me. And let your soul be encouraged by this. If you're anything like me, when you walk through moments of confusion in your faith or, or doubts or struggles with sin, despite all that you should know about Jesus, despite how faithfully you know you should be able to follow him, you probably wonder if he's just ready to snuff you out. You feel like he might be ready to toss you right out of the boat. But just as Jesus stays with them and he beckons them to keep on following, to keep on watching, to keep on struggling, he does the same with you and me. What a kind, gracious, merciful, patient friend of struggling sinners we have in Jesus. So brother or sister, bring your doubts. Bring your questions. Bring your stubbornness. And Jesus will prove himself to be the bread that satisfies your hunger. He'll prove himself to be the one who really did die for your sin and really did rise again from the grave to grant you eternal life. He'll prove himself to be the one who stays with you when it's the last thing that you deserve. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we close out. I hope that through everything that we've read today that you see that Jesus is the bread that you need. If you sense today that you're undeserving of anything that the King of Kings could do for you, come to him boldly. Beg him for crumbs and watch him give you a feast. If you sense that you're helpless and you can do nothing to help yourself, 
If someone who cares about you has had to drag you here today to get you before the king, watch him lay his healing hand upon your soul and awaken your senses to him. If you realize that you are hungry for salvation, come to this compassionate Savior who multiplies bread so that there is enough for you along with everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation who's willing to come to him. And if you're weak in faith, if you're barely able to cling to what you know of him, know that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love, a solid rock for wavering people like you and me. Friends, this Jesus is true bread for hungry people. He's true bread for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark today. Thank you that you go to the nations. That's the only reason that we stand here today worshiping you is because your people who walked with you on the earth were faithful to carry your message forward so that we, generations and generations later, could come to know you. Thank you, God, that you've proven yourself so faithful in so many different ways, not only here in your word, but also in our lives. And I pray that we would have eyes to see and have ears to hear and reflect on your goodness in our lives. Pray that we would come to you boldly, knowing that you give grace to the undeserving, that you are here to meet our every need. Jesus, open our ears, open our eyes to this truth. Might we live out of it from here forward. We pray this in your name. Amen.